As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Swing and a line drive, base hit right field. Max Scherzer has done it again. Do you believe it, Howie Kendrick? Part two. The celebration is on. The Washington Nationals are the world champions. Yeah, even though there haven't been any baseball games yet, there's a whole lot going on in baseball. Todd Dibus, Chase Hughes, Nick Ashew, Nats Talk Podcast. And we got players talking about not wanting to play for pay cuts. We've got questions about how Major League Baseball is certainly going to implement a shortened season and, and the uh, a million things that are going to be involved guys in trying to set up a, a shortened season how they're going to do it let's just look at this from just one thing at a time because I mean it could take us two hours to look at all the different scenarios that are going on with baseball right now but Todd we were talking about this I mean, we've got at least one player now coming out saying they don't want to play for less money with the risk that's certainly out there, and that is sort of looked at by a lot of people is, well, it's, it's the quiet conversation a lot of players are having right now. Yeah, we heard Blake Snell say this on his Twitch channel, um, whereas that's usually where Chase goes to air his grievances. You can catch him <laughs> over on, Chase, on uh, Twitch three nights a week. Playing Fortnite. Yeah, but uh, it was interesting to hear him say that out loud. Um, you know, he said, for me to take a pay cut is not happening because the risk is through the roof. It's a shorter season, less pay. No, I got to get my money. So he went on to say a few other things. I'm just saying, man, it just doesn't make sense for me to lose all of that money and then go play and then be on lockdown, not around my family, not around the people I love and get paid way to hell less and then the risk of injury runs every time I step on the field. So it's, it's just, it's not worth it. It's not. I love baseball to death. It's just not worth it. That line, no, I got to get my money, is precisely the line that the owners want a player to say out loud. And it's precisely the line that is going to continue to brew PR problems as the owners and the Players Association try to figure out a way to divvy up the money and it's going to be very very ugly uh in public if they continue to discuss things this way and the current economic climate for everybody else is going to make this a very complicated situation in particular for players because the owners were able to start by saying hey we'll give you 50 50 and we'll put that phrase into the public sphere 
And it doesn't sound so bad, right? It sounds like they're being somewhat reasonable. However, they know there's no chance in hell the union is going to agree to that, but they did it anyway. So we're going to have an ongoing semantics tussle, an ongoing PR battle, and it's going to be about money in a very, very touchy time. And I'm pretty concerned about how ultimately it's going to work out for baseball because if bickering about money in a short season results in no season, that's going to be a really ugly mark for the sport. Yeah, well, I think what we realized with this recent proposed plan is that there are not one but two major issues that baseball has to get over. Not only the safety, but also the revenue sharing and how much money everyone's going to get. And this is an issue that we haven't really seen in the other sports, especially, you know, I've been following the NBA and what they're trying to do to get things back on track. And maybe it's because they've played most of their season already or the, or the CBA and the salary cap is really defined. But this is clearly a, a major issue in baseball. And I, I feel like you, you hear all the concerns from the players. I wonder at one point, is there going to have to be a line that's drawn in terms of sort of just a deal with it or don't play uh, mindset because there's so many people that you have to please in this that it's going to be impossible to, to make everybody happy. I think at some point players are going to have to make concessions. Owners are going to have to make concessions. And I just wonder if they can find that line and where it will be so that they can get baseball back running again. The thing with this too, and when we talk about, I mean, look, money is going to be involved in everything. We know that we've gone through plenty of CBA negotiations over the years with different sports. And we've seen how this goes and people get mad that millionaires and billionaires are fighting over money. But in those settings, that was different than the world we're in now. What these guys need to understand that if you want to take the stance like Snell did of, I got to get my full check or I'm not doing it everybody's taking pay cuts right now. The whole world is taking pay cuts. So you look at it as it's either a lot of my money or none of my money. You'd probably want to take a lot of the money. It's like looking at these, you know, when you get those, those hotel deals on some of these websites where it's like, you, you know, they have these last minute rooms and they're giving you a cheaper price. The hotels are doing that because they say, well, we'd rather take some of the price for this room than none of it whatsoever and get no money around. And, that's what these players that are, that are digging their heels in need to understand. If you're concerned about safety, that is totally understandable. And that's a whole separate conversation. But if the conversation is, well, you know, I got to get my full check because there's a risk here. Nobody's getting full checks. The whole world is taking pay cuts right now. We're in a completely different landscape. And that's where people are going to get the most frustrated. It's not just millionaires versus billionaires fighting over a normal collective bargaining agreement that's happened in the past. This goes far beyond that. And really, you're right. The, the, there's a PR part to this, and there's an image part to this that the rest of the country and really the rest of the world just doesn't care about because there's bigger things that they're thinking about right now. Yeah, so the players will start with the stance, hey, we already took a pay cut in the first round of negotiations here to kind of like set a baseline to move forward. They will also say that anything the owners propose now is something the owners might try to sneak into the CBA later. Um, so that makes them concerned. And they also try to portray the framework as take out the numbers and make it more of a employer-employee relationship point of view, saying the employees are taking less money and assuming the risk whereas the employer is assuming no risk, but trying to gain money out of the employee's pockets, basically, to put in their pocket and kind of balance things out. 
Now, I'm not saying that that's right, but I'm saying that's the argument that the players make. And for the public, it's just easier to be irritated with a player than it is with an owner. You know, you buy a jersey, you watch these guys, you follow them. It's just easier. They're the face of the franchise more than any owner. And it's also pretty wild. The flip side of that is to hear owners talk about losing money in such a desperate fashion as if it's never going to come around again. 29 of the 30 Major League Baseball franchises are valued at a billion dollars or more, according to Forbes. The only one not at a billion yet is the Miami Marlins, which if they had kept their good play, they probably would be over that mark. And eventually they will be because they're at $980 million. So in the end, (laughs) owners never lose money, ever, 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 ever. Donald Sterling put a terrible product out while simultaneously being a racist for years and he made money. So it's a foolproof business model. And in the end, if you lose whatever number comes to this year, say $120 million, whatever it is in revenue, you will start making revenue back next year. You will progressively make more revenue in the coming years. And when you sell the team, you will make a boatload of money in doing so. So it's a bit of a hollow argument from owners, um, and it's a bit unfair on their part to propose the revenue sharing thing off the top when they know that it's not going to be accepted by the players. It's very similar in concept to when the Nationals offered Bryce Harper a number they knew he would not take. So. The only hope here is that they threw that out because this is the bottom and it's a negotiation. So they're going to start at the bottom and they can create some goodwill and move more toward the middle as opposed to it being a hard line that the players are just going to be super irritated with off the top. And it's going to make it very problematic in a year when there's are so many logistical things to figure out on top of this. And then they're going to have to argue about the money. It's a lot of square pegs and round holes, unfortunately, going on right now. Yeah, it's interesting when you frame it through the lens of the PR battle, because this is obviously a unique circumstance. But I feel like we've seen over and over throughout sports that fans generally side against the players in these situations, even when it's a contract negotiation and it's a billionaire negotiating yes. with a guy who, yes, he's made $100 million in his career, but you know maybe came from from poverty or something and is looking at his one opportunity to make a ton of money, whether it be in the NBA or major league baseball or the NFL. And the, the word greedy, I feel like is more often attached to the players and people want players to be more loyal and maybe take pay cuts to win. So that's a PR battle that though, if you look at it through some prisms, it it might favor the players. It just hasn't been that way in other circumstances. So maybe the more effective argument for them is the one that we've seen guys like, Sean Doolittle make or uh, Ryan Zimmerman and his wife, Heather Zimmerman, where it's about family and health and safety. And, you know, Sean Doolittle had this long Twitter thread. It was 16 tweets long. He didn't count them. He didn't put the numbers in parentheses like most people do. He didn't put uh, fiend on the end of it. You know how most Twitter threads go, but it was a long thread. He obviously did a lot of research and was talking about the long-term effects of COVID-19 and how it can, um, you know, give you long-term lung damage and, and affect your 
um, all sorts of things that he said, uh, you know, definitely not a good thing for an athlete. So I think of the two issues, maybe that's the one that the players can kind of win in the public eye more so than the money. Yeah, I think that's what just makes this whole situation so unique is that it's more than just it being about money. Money is always at the root of everything. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves, but there's so much more involved in this whole situation than just that. But in the end, because there is a lot of money involved, as with most of these leagues, they're going to find a way to make something happen because it's either a lot of money or it's no money. And I think everybody would prefer to take a lot of money, even if it's a percentage of what it is, what the total amount of money is going to be if they lose everything. And we bring in NBC Sports, Boston's John Tomasi. And let's look around at the AL East right now is sort of considered like, that's the crown jewel of baseball. I feel like a lot of people view it that way with the Red Sox and the Yankees. It's always interesting to see how people outside of D.C. view our teams here. And if you look at the Nationals, how does like the AL East fan base view the Nationals? I would probably say maybe as a team that got a little bit lucky last year as a wild card, maybe a one-year wonder. I'm not saying this is fair, but this is kind of how – this is my take on it. Maybe a one-year wonder. Losing Rendon obviously hurts, but the one thing is obviously the respect factor goes through the roof for taking out the Astros, a team that all of baseball, but particularly Red Sox and Yankees fans and Rays fans, truly hate uh, just for the way they conducted themselves over the last couple of years for all of the follow-up from the cheating scandal directly impacted both the Red Sox and the Yankees over the last couple of years, and the Rays for that matter. And so those teams all hate, hate, hate the Astros. And you take out the Astros, you are our friend. Hey, John, it's Todd Divas. Uh, My first question for you is, is it more fun working with me or not working with me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> working with you please I wasn't sure if this was going to come up Divis and I go way back he knew me when I had my first bout with long hair which was by choice the current one is because I can't find anyone to cut my hair in a pandemic <laughs> yeah um it was problematic then probably more so because of you opted in uh whereas here you know we'll give you a pass for being stuck um Thanks. but back to the baseball <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, the Nationals, who would you consider a rival for them in the reformatted play if we're just doing East-East here in 2020? I mean, can you even pick somebody over there? Oh, sure. I mean, you'd love, in a perfect world, you'd say the Orioles, but unfortunately, we know they are irrelevant sure. uh, at the moment, so it's not going to be them. Uh, really, it's the Yankees, because the Yankees are – a legit World Series contender. The Nationals are the defending World Series champs. I mean, I think there you go right there. The Rays are the little team that could, and they are the team that very nearly, you know, kind of duplicated what the Nationals did last year, pushing the Astros to the limit. But I still look at it as, you know, the Nationals showed that they can spend, obviously, uh, with the contract they gave Strasburg. The Yankees went out and got Garrett Cole. I think you're really looking at a Yankees-Nationals 1-2 in that reconfigured East, if that's the way baseball goes. John, you mentioned uh, the Nationals are defending World Series champs. When baseball does return, you have some experience covering a team that was trying to defend their title in the Red Sox. What are the Nats in store for in terms of uh, trying to run it back? Yeah, so I mean, I covered the 04 Red Sox, the 07 Red Sox, the 13 Red Sox, and the 18 Red Sox. And every year after that, 
outside of 08. 08, they went to game seven of the ALCS and they just ran out of gas against the Rays. But every other one of those years, 05, 14, certainly last year, you saw a huge drop off. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Now, the delayed start to this season throws a lot of what I'm about to say into question because none of us know exactly how teams are going to respond. It may actually play in the Nationals' favor because the one consistent thing that you saw from year to year to year was defending champs. Their pitching staff was just annihilated the following year. Pedro Martinez admitted that his career was never quite the same after 04. We saw massive drop-offs uh, from guys like Josh Beckett in 08. Uh, the entire pitching staff last year, Chris Sale didn't even make it through the season. David Price was hurt for a lot of the year. Rick Porcello was statistically one of the worst pitchers in baseball. And they all talk about just the attrition and how much it took out of them playing those extra games and those extra high-intensity games in October. Now, your guys have had an extra couple of months that they're not going to have to deal with that. And maybe that's an equalizer of some, of some kind. But I would be watching your pitchers very closely, even after this layoff. Asking them to go deep into October two years in a row is not easy. And there's a reason nobody's repeated in 20 years. John, I want to kind of stick with the theme that I had with you the first time. It, just your view of outside of the Nationals and how people see them and how people see the team. I, I want to look at some of the players because clearly here in, in D.C., everybody gets caught up in the moment and clearly caught up in, in what the Nationals did. But like outside, for example, I want to look at some of the, the stars that the Nationals have and see sort of what your view is, maybe what other people's views are of those players. I want to start with Juan Soto. How do you look at Juan Soto as a player? Wide drive, base hit to right. That'll score one, that'll score two as the ball gets away from Grisham and right. That's going to score three runs, and the Washington Nationals have the lead. They have Soto hung up, they tag him out, but nobody in this joint cares. Oh, superstar, superstar. And not only that, but exactly what baseball needs. Now, those of us who only knew him more from his numbers than seeing him day to day, I think the first thing that jumped out was the on-base. Like, for a kid 19, 20 years old to be posting on-base percentages above 400, that's unprecedented in the history of baseball. And so that's the first thing you say, wow, this guy already controls the strike zone. But what really makes him special in my mind is the personality, which baseball desperately needs. And the first time I saw that weird crouch and, you know, the way he sort of spits on pitches and the dances <laughs> that he does in the box and the yeah. whole thing, that to me is tremendous. And in a sport that is just so staid and tired and needs an infusion of personality and youth and enthusiasm, he embodies that. So giving him that World Series stage last year, to not only show the personality, but also to be, you know, one of really, it was kind of crazy to watch your team run through the postseason where it was him and Rendon. It was almost like you could pitch around everybody else, but those two guys kept finding ways to win games. The fact that he already took that on at such a young age, I think is tremendous. Yeah, there was a lot of people that were certainly fans of the Soto Shuffle and some others maybe I don't know, didn't like it as much, but uh, that's fine because they're not as fun as Juan Soto, so who cares? Uh, what about Max Scherzer? What's your view on him? The Scherzer pitch, swing and a miss, struck him out with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball away, and the side retired, strikeout number six for Max Scherzer. Yeah, I mean, Hall of Famer, elder statesman. It, it, Red Sox fans have a weird uh, relationship with him because he's a guy in 2013 who absolutely dominated them in the postseason, in the ALCS, 
think he took a no-hitter into the fifth or sixth inning, one of his starts. Uh, the other start, he was winning late. And both times, a reliever came in and gave up a grand slam. David Ortiz, the famous one, Torrey Hunter, going over the fence in game two. And then the clinching game six, you have Shane Victorino uh, somehow managing to hit out a right-on-right curveball. And Scherzer just has to sit there and watch helplessly after one of his teammates had committed an error. So I think he's a guy that if you're a true baseball fan, he's the kind of person you say he, de- he deserved to win a World Series before his career was over. So it's nice to see him get that one. All right, I got one more for you. And he's had a little more of, I'd say, a, a, maybe a complicated reputation a little bit here in Steven Strasburg. Swing and a line drive caught by Strasburg. Look what I found. The inning is over. Strasburg snares the line drive off the bat of Pollock to retire the side. Oh, okay. So I have some thoughts on Steven Strasburg. This is my outside opinion. I know he's a favorite of the Nationals' ownership, and he's a lifelong Nat, and I get that. But I'm telling you, he is 1,000% the guy that you let walk in free agency. His age, his workload, you know, the history of, of injury – you do not pay a 30-year-old pitcher out of emotion just because of what he did in the World Series. And I know that's hard, and I know fans would have rebelled. But to me, what did he get, $245 million? Whatever his contract was, you give that money to Rendon. You don't give it to a pitcher who's at risk of breaking down. And when the Red Sox signed David Price, different circumstances because he wasn't their guy. But they ignored all of the warning signs, and Price had been much more durable than Strasburg to that point. And even though Price won them a World Series, that was not a good contract. And they were happy to get out from under it this offseason. I think Strasburg is going to be one of those contracts you look at. And, I mean, you say, hey, he helped us win a World Series. You always have that. But I think that's a contract that the Nationals are going to regret. John, I want to bring it back to what might happen in 2020. And one thing that hasn't been discussed much, at least around here, or that, and I haven't seen it much on the Twitter, is, how transactions may work in an 82-game or 81-game season or even in a 100-game season. Are there going to be trades allowed? How can you acquire other players? Even how, how would the injured list uh, work when that goes on? So if MLB came to you and said, how should we do transactions and trades, you would tell them what? During a show, oh, God, I when you, I, I almost want to say, what would you do? Because I don't have a good answer. I, I mean, I think first of all, you have to allow for some transactions <laughs> because, especially with the condensed nature of the schedule, there's going to be injuries, and it wouldn't be fair for teams to just sort of have to muddle through uh, with what they have. They're also talking about what, like fifty man ro- or thirty man rosters, whatever it is, in terms of you know fifty men between taxi squads and players or whatever you need to be able to add. So I guess my simple answer to that would be pick the halfway point. If you have an 82 game schedule after 40 games, there's no more trading, but you have to give teams at least a chance to address their needs. What do you guys think? I think like trades would be very, very difficult to allow. Like when do you set the deadline? Um, The finances around it would be weird and, are you going to change, like, does the CBT apply in any capacity this year? Probably not. So then does that change everything? And since it's so short term, like, are you going to give a good prospect for one month of a guy? Like, what are you going to give up? I think it would be very, very tricky. Chase, what do you think? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess the, the easy answer is I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I hadn't really thought of it too much, but 
you know, you hear the concerns from the players about their families and being sequestered from them. And there's all these logistical problems with travel. Just, you know, uprooting your family in, in the middle of a normal season is a big deal. Uh, doing it now during all of this when you're trying to take all these precautions, I don't, I don't see how you, you make it work. So that, that's interesting. I'm going to have to put a little bit more thought into it. But, uh, John, I wanted to ask you about um, the sign-stealing scandal. Obviously, it was a big storyline for the Red Sox this offseason. Were you surprised by the punishment or lack thereof? Yes and no. So yes, in the sense of I do think the Red Sox got, got off easy. I've made no secret of that in my writing and my TV appearances up here. But at the same time, this whole thing spiraled so far out of baseball's control. What started, I think, is a mission on, you know, Rob Manfred's part to just put up a barrier to teams cheating anymore. It's basically like, this is going to be a deterrent. We're going to punish the Astros, and that's going to be the end of it. And then what happened was you had the cascade of managers get fired between Cora and Beltran and the Astros, and it started to spiral out of baseball's control. And I think at the end of the day, baseball wanted – it felt like it had made its point and wanted to just put a stop to this. And if you start hammering the Red Sox and opening up doors for, you know, disgruntled people to say, well, what about the Yankees? What about this team? What about that team? This thing just goes crazy. As far as the Red Sox themselves, though, they 100% got off easy, and they should be embarrassed that a low-level J.T. Watkins, uh, you know, a West Point grad, that he was allowed to take the fall for this. I find that disgraceful. And, you know, they're going to have to live with it. I think they did. They <laughs> practiced the Omerta kind of thing where they just buttoned up. I will never, ever believe that they did absolutely nothing. That justifies logic to me that Alex Cora would be so successful with it in Houston, come to Boston knowing that Houston was still going to do something and say, no, we're not going to, we're going to stay completely above board. I just find that hard to believe. And now the amazing thing is, is well, nobody's really talking about it because there's bigger things going on in the world. So we'll yeah. see if that starts to get drum up whenever the season does start. It's, it's crazy. Uh, he's NBC Sports Boston's John Tomasi. Really appreciate the time, man. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks, John. Anytime, guys. Maybe we'll see you in October. I know one of the things on this podcast you guys have been doing every week that I want to get to is just looking at, of course, the last dance, the Jordan documentary, because we're coming up on the last week for that. Uh, I know I've loved watching it. I love seeing really just all of the different stories that really that weren't out there on a regular basis. You didn't hear as much about. And by the way, I will say this too, watching some of the, either the failures or the negative conversation about Michael Jordan, whether he was too tough on people or a jerk or, you know, some of the times where he had bad games. I've made this point for years, guys, with, with any athlete that's a star, there's a certain point where you forget their failures and only remember the broad picture of the great things they did. And this is kind of bringing at least some of that to light again to show that as great as Jordan was, uh, even he wasn't perfect and just had bad moments in his career. Yeah, that's definitely been a takeaway uh, for me. It's funny, you know, I was watching an old uh, Michael Jordan college game where he was at UNC um, playing against Len Bias. I did an article for our website. And they were, the announcers at the time, I think it was 1983, and they were talking about how Dean Smith couldn't get over the hump. He couldn't win. He kept going to the Final Four and would never win. And that title he won with Michael Jordan really kind of changed his legacy. And it's like Dean Smith, <laughs> Dean Smith and Michael Jordan, if they had that reputation before breaking through, I think it can happen to anyone. But um, yeah, as far as the last dance, obviously episode seven and eight were last weekend. Uh, the things that stood out to me were Terry Francona saying that Michael Jordan could have made the majors if he had 1500 minor league at bats. 
I think people sleep on how good he was actually at baseball, relatively speaking. Also, his retirement press conference had Tom Brokaw cover it. Um, I think that goes to show how big of a star he was. I just can't picture that for like LeBron James, like Anderson Cooper showing up at his press conference uh, nowadays. And two other things, obviously, uh, episode eight gave us another great meme of MJ laughing at the, uh, the iPad when Gary Payton was talking about him. I think this is a reminder that Michael Jordan might be the most memeable person of all time because even uh, in a documentary that's, that's going through <laughs> what happened in the 90s, he's still producing like legendary memes. And of course, the crying Jordan meme uh, is an all-timer. And then finally, um, from that set of episodes, Steve Kerr, who played on the Bulls and is coaching the Warriors now, said that the 90s Bulls were the best team he's been a part of. So I hope that settles all the Twitter debates. Yeah, for me, it was just more of the same of the excellent lookbacks, um, the era. The soundtrack continues to kill. And there have been some stories about how this has been kind of edited on the fly and they had to cram things together with uh, the date, the release date being moved up. So subsequently, as someone who works in this business, you know, I couldn't be more impressed with the outcome under the circumstances that they're working in. So, you know, anything that has KRS-One in it, I mean, really can't go wrong there. So it's, uh, it's been super fun. And I do think we saw some premature criticism of, of the documentary because they hadn't shown Jordan's kind of other side. But then they got to that, and now we're moving forward. I'm also also remain super impressed with Steve Kerr for getting in a fight with Michael Jordan in practice. <laughs> <laughs> kudos, kudos to Steve Kerr for finally standing up to this guy, unlike so many other players who dealt with all this stuff. And um, uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to this to this Sunday. I'm I'm very interested. The thing that's been really appealing to me in the editing. And you, and you think about this as a writer all the time, and I'll, I'll always argue that writing a good ending is much more difficult than writing a, a quality start. And like last week when they cut to, it, it was just Reggie saying, I'm thinking I'm going to retire Michael Jordan. And then it's wham <laughs> in the music. I know what happens. I know that Reggie is somewhat foolish in general with his statement and how he viewed his personal <laughs> ability. But yet, I was like, roll the tape. <laughs> Let's get to it now. That Pacers team was really good. They had a bunch of interesting players on that team and interesting parts. And, you know, and if anybody's going to talk back, it's going to be Reggie and all this other stuff. And so, again, like kudos to the people who are putting it together. And, I, and I'm very much looking forward to that. And I'm very curious how they are going to finish it off ultimately because you have that pure visual of Jordan hitting the shot against Brian Russell. Are they going to have Russell on there to say, yeah, he pushed me in the hip. Is anyone going to say that? <laughs> um, and all these things to come. So, or will they go into uh, the Wizards? You know, excited years. for Sunday. That's, that's what I don't know is whether or not they're going to have any of his time with the Wizards in there. They have to at least touch on it. I think they have to. Dude. Yeah, I mean, we're down to the last, we're down to last episodes, and then we're going to have to find some other documentary to talk about, and it'll never be the same as this one because of it being Jordan and the fact that it's really been appointment television when we haven't had live sports for so long. All right, make sure you download and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. That's what everybody does. That's a tradition with podcasts. Next week, we're going to have a very big guest. I'm not allowed to say who it is yet, 
but we do get to at least tease. There's a very big guest with us next week on the podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. Give Todd and Chase and myself a follow on all the various socials and talk to you next time. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.